Again, a very special good morning to each and every one. Delighted we each can be for the opportunity given to us to assemble today. Many who, again, have been somewhat under the weather have been blessed with the capability of health today to allow us to be here, and we're so thankful for each and every individual, our membership, and our visitors alike. We trust that our service together, more than anything else, will bring the proper adoration and worship unto God, and surely each of us will be benefited in the process as well. As you may have noted in the wall to my left, also to look at the bulletin, the title that I selected for the lesson this morning had to do in one instance with deliver. Our God is able to deliver. Brother Derek read a moment ago from the third chapter of the book of Daniel, and as we come to the proper place in the lesson, we'll look somewhat at the episode, the record of that event, and find time and again the marvelous matter of God's deliverance. I would suspect, though, that a few words of initial remark might well be in order. Isn't it amazing how often you and I think about the word deliverance? Quite often, isn't it true that that word brings about a positive sense? We think about an individual delivered out of trouble or some particular problem that he or she may be facing. On perhaps an easier scale, we think about when the UPS man comes and delivers something you and I have been wanting to get something we've been looking for and anxiously awaiting. Quite often deliverance then brings about the thought that formerly there was oppression, formerly there was captivity, formerly there was enslavement, but now there's deliverance. The title again, Our God is Able to Deliver. I would invite you then on a sojourn with me for the next few moments this morning as we reflect upon God's deliverance and we'll look at it from at least three perspectives. As we do that, we'll be reminded that not only is God able to, but throughout the ages past, on many occasions, He did deliver. And in that deliverance, He brought about a, such a great people or individual to His service and to His way. Without further ado, you'll notice the bottom statement on that slide. The deliverance made available, not from the human standpoint of strength, but of course from God. Why don't we begin with the children of Israel? Far back in the days of the Old Testament, the scene and the story, at least in general, is rather well known to each of us. In Genesis 46, the children of Israel went into Egypt in a peaceful way. They went there to be sustained by the directive guidance of Joseph, who had risen to such prominence and prestige in the nation. And as they went into that land, however, there was to come a time when there arose a king that knew not Joseph. Exodus 1 verse 8. And as that king arose, the people, the children of Israel, came to be oppressed. They came, in fact, to be made to undergo a hard rigor. Even the straw on one occasion was removed, but the tail of the bricks was not in any way diminished. Finally, God, of course, hand-selected a gentleman named Moses to deliver this people. Go and let my people go. In chapter 7 through 12, ten plagues came upon the Egyptians, and finally the Pharaoh did agree to let them go. And here the people of Israel then left the Egyptian bondage headed toward a land that was to be their inheritance. A land of milk and honey, a land of abundance, and a land of great provision. As you can well imagine, as they proceeded on that way, here comes a point of observation. They ultimately would wander 40 years in that wilderness. 40 years, and when you and I pause to think about that, from our perspective, 40 years is a rather lengthy period of time. 
For those of you that are at least age 40, what were you doing 40 years ago? If God allows the world to stand, what will you and I perhaps be doing 40 years from now if we're allowed to continue living? We're aware 40 years is a long time. I wonder how the people were sustained through that 40 years. In what way were they provided for? By what mechanism, by what means did that provision take place? I would submit to you that that, in fact, is something worthwhile of consideration. So let's take just a moment and put some numbers to that consideration. First of all, how many individuals are we considering? Numbers 146 reminds us that of those men aged 20 and older, they numbered 603,550. So from age 20 on up to the stopping age for them to work in the military, we had a little over 600,000 men. Otherwise, we're told there were 22,000 Levites, if we then estimate 300,000 more men, being little boys or being aged men, it seems as if we are already at roughly a million men alone. Let's double that to incorporate the women, roughly a million women it would seem. How many children then per se, perhaps infants and babies? I estimated a grand total of some three and a half million people wandering in this desert of sin wandering from the land of Egypt ultimately all the way to the eastern border of the land of Canaan. Three and a half million people. The number could well have been higher, but at least based on that number. How much food would it take to feed that large a number of people? You and I might well think about how much it takes to feed a family of ten. What if we were charged with feeding three and a half million people every day for 40 years? Well, here are some numbers. According to the World Record, the World Council of Records, it takes about 792 pounds of food to feed a person in a given year. 792 pounds of food per year. You and I now can put that number along with the other that we just estimated, the number of people. The conclusion is quickly obtained, isn't it? It would have required about 6 million pounds of food every single day to feed this larger number of people. 6 million pounds of food per day. You'll notice as you give thought to that, you could divide that to get the number of tons. We're talking 3,000 tons of food per day. Remember, these folks are in a desert, aren't they? There's no McDonald's nearby. There's no cafeteria nearby. All through that to which these individuals had access was by a special provision of the God of heaven. 3,000 tons of food every day. You'll notice as you come to that point, suppose we just imagine tractor trailers. Many times they do haul a little more than 40,000 pounds, but just to estimate it at 40,000 pounds per truck, it would have required 150 tractor-trailer trucks every day just to feed this large number of people. As you and I give thought to that, isn't it astounding then to give thought to here was the God of heaven who not only commanded their exodus from Egypt, but made ample provision throughout all the way while in fact they sojourned in that land. So far, as we have just given thought to the number of food alone, what about the water needs that would have, of course, been in place? 
You'll notice again, I just estimated a half a gallon of water per person per day. A half a gallon. Many of us, I'm sure, use far more than that. But just as a conservative estimate, you'll notice that brings us to 6 million gallons of water every single day. 6 million gallons a day of water. As before, we could make some additional estimates about that. A, ta a tanker truck. Given the number of gallons that a tanker truck hauls, we're looking at a, over 1,050 tanker trucks of water, provision of water for this group of people every day. When you and I remember that the sea that was nearby, remember, was salty, they couldn't just go up to the Gulf of Aqaba and drink out of it. There was had to be an special provision on the part of the God of heaven for deliverance of this people under the burden of food, under the burden of water. Astounding to consider it, isn't it? As you'll notice also on that slide, we know that there would have been need for wood on a daily basis, for cooking, for other kinds of heating of water for various purposes and processes. You'll notice again, it's not that difficult to estimate. We may well have been in the ballpark of 8,000 tons of wood every day. 352 tractor-trailer trucks of wood by way of provision every day for 40 years. The numbers are almost staggering, aren't they? You and I, again, perhaps melt underneath the load of thinking about trying to provide those kinds of necessities to this group of people on a daily basis. You and I well know that the God of heaven provided manna six days a week for this people. Easy enough to estimate again, there would have had to have been on order of 2,000 tons of manna a day. 2,000 tons! Shocking then to give thought to the nature of how bountiful, how ample, how able was the provision of deliverance by the God of heaven. Perhaps one final thought. Those quail of which we read about in Numbers chapter 11, again, it would be easy to say there had to have been tons of quail provided per day. I would submit to you in light of all of that, this people didn't have airplanes. They didn't have trains. They didn't have cars or trucks or any of the like. The provision for all of this was by the marvelous, majestic, unequaled God of heaven. Our God is able to deliver. If He can sustain this people for that long, wandering in a wilderness with so little otherwise provision, can He not address and provide the needs whereby you and I need deliverance today? You'll notice beyond that, as we give thought to the characteristic of all of the, that happened with the children of Israel, maybe one final comment before we turn our attention to the text that Derek read earlier. This people who wandered for all that while, there was to be a singular lesson that they were to keep in mind relative to these matters. As Deuteronomy set it out, they were never ever to forget that it was God who provided. It was not they themselves, it was not their strength or their ability. They were wandering in a place that seemed so destitute of physical blessings, and yet you'll notice they didn't die of starvation. They didn't die because of lack of water. They died because of their disobedience. They died because of their unbelief. And in that wilderness, that's where they met their end, not because God couldn't provide. The provision of God brings us to Daniel chapter 3 as well. 
the scene there is an overwhelming one, just as has been the children of Israel. As Daniel chapter 3 begins, Nebuchadnezzar is the king on the Babylonian throne, and he makes the decision to erect an image, an idol if you please, and everyone is supposed to, when they hear the music, fall down and worship that image. It was an image of massive size. It stood 90 feet tall, 9 feet broad. You no doubt could see it all over the land for large distances. It was situated in the plain of Dura, as we read in verse 1 of Daniel 3. And again, the order was very clearly provided. Anytime you hear the music, psaltery, dulcimer, sackbut, harp, you name it, you fall down and you direct worship toward that image. You'll notice as the chapter unfolded, though, that an interesting strain of events begins to, to be detailed before us. Daniel had three friends, you might remember. We typically know them by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And sure enough, when the music played, these three Jewish lads did not bow down and worship that image. They remained in the integrity of their heart and direction toward God, and they did not succumb to the pressure of worshiping that image in idolatry. You'll notice that word finally was brought to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, there are some individuals in the empire who do not honor your laws. They do not worship your image. They do not give credence to that which you've commanded. Nebuchadnezzar had the boys called in and questioned them. He asked them, sure enough, have you refused to bow before the image? They with courage said, we did refuse. It is in that regard I would ask you to notice the language. Let's begin reading in Daniel chapter 3 if you would. Verse number 16, and it says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. In other words, they were not lying and they were not flattering. They, they simply said, we're not careful, meaning that we are not going to sidestep anything except the truth of what has taken place. Verse 17, if it be so, be it known, or our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and He will deliver us out of thine hand, O King. But if not, be it known unto thee, O King, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. The penalty and threat, of course, uttered by Nebuchadnezzar himself was anybody that doesn't bow down and worship the image is to be cast alive into a burning fiery furnace, to be consumed in the heat of that moment and of course their life to be taken by being burned alive. These three young men with bravery and with courage refused to submit to that matter of idolatry and furthermore you'll notice they even admitted this to the king. Verse 17, our God is able to deliver us. What courage those young men had. What belief they had. What confidence they had. They knew that they were in dire straits. The most powerful man in the empire was threatening them with a the fiery furnace. And yet, by conviction, they remained dedicated to God and said, Oh God, we know that our God is able to deliver us. But even if He doesn't, let it be known, we will not serve your gods. That kind of courage is that which stands out so beautifully on the pages of the Word of God, doesn't it? 
Do you and I have that kind of confidence in God? Do you and I have that kind of assurance and trustworthiness that our God is able to deliver us? We so often are reminded of the weakness and the foibleness of man when he makes such mistakes and such ignorance, but yet our God is able to deliver. You will remember what happened. Nebuchadnezzar was true to his word. Once they confessed and admitted that they had refused to bow before that image, and they furthermore said, we're not going to bow before it in the future, then he did cast them into the fiery furnace, just like he promised he would. However, when he did so, even he himself admitted as he looked into the fiery furnace, though it had been heated more hotly than it was normally heated to, he said, I see not three, but I see a fourth man down in there. One likened unto the Son of Man. I'm fully persuaded that the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ was in that fiery furnace, assisting, helping, providing, and protecting Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Ultimately, the king said, bring them out, because there had not been the slightest hair on their head singed. There had not been the slightest element of smoke embodied in their clothing. They had been entirely preserved protected and delivered. These kind of lessons that we've seen so far are very encouraging, aren't they? So often in a world in which we see so much bad, and it seems like the devil is all-powerful and everything goes his way. It seems as if there's no power strong enough to defeat him or at least stand in his way. May you and I, as the faithful members of the body of Christ, Never forget, our God is able to deliver. Our God is the most powerful one. It is for that reason these last thoughts on this slide also are worthwhile of our consideration. Our God can deliver. I would submit to you that the confidence should be brimming over inside you and me just based on records like we've studied so far. God's ample provision of the children of Israel. And keep in mind that they often were unthankful. They often were guilty of whining and complaining and grumbling. And yet God brought water out of a rock. He brought food every morning. All they had to do was go gather it and pick it up. How would you like, instead of going to the grocery store on a weekly or more often basis, all you had to do was go out the back door and pick it up off the ground? That's what they did. God can provide, can't He? He can deliver out of the oppressions of physical want. He can deliver out of the difficulties associated with physical necessity. Look at just a few of the verses that you'll find on this slide. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and He shall sustain thee. Psalm 37.3 When you and I keep in mind verses like that one, the trustworthiness and the commandment given to us to put our trust and faith in God. Psalm 91.2 also again reminds us about the urgency of putting not only our acknowledgement, but our full confidence and trust in Him. It is a common temptation, isn't it, to lose that sense of elemental trust. We wish to trust in our own government, maybe ourselves, maybe someone else. It still is true from Psalm 118 verse 8 though, isn't it, that it is better to trust in the Lord than to put trust in princes. Beyond that, you'll appreciate with me some promises that the God of heaven has made. Beginning in Matthew 6, 24, 
early on in the Lord's public ministry in many ways, it was on that occasion that the Lord taught lessons as follows. The lilies of the field, they are provided for, and yet they don't sow or reap, they don't spin. What about the birds of the air? Same thing, God provides for them. Question, are you not worth much more than birds, flowers? May we never forget that God considers us more worthy than them because we are immortal spirits. You and I are going to live forever. And if God takes care of birds and plants and grasses, He will take care of those that are His children. Verse 33 summarizes that thought like this, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. What things will be added? The Lord in context was discussing shelter and clothing and food. The God of heaven has made then a promise to His children. He will provide those necessities of life if we will place Him first, following in the way He has set for us, striving to do so with confidence, assurance, and trustworthiness toward Him and His way. It is a lesson, though, that never gets old because the devil constantly wants to direct your attention and mine. Trust in self, trust in someone else, anybody but God. Because he understands that when our trust is divided, that's when we start to worry. And that word worry literally means to divide the mind. And therefore, when we proceed to worry and forget God and we lose our confidence in Him, then the devil knows he is such that he has us where he wants us. As you can well appreciate, not only in that passage, a whole host of promises, some of which read like this. Cast thy burden upon the Lord, and He shall sustain thee. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved, Psalm 55, 22. Do you remember with me that David often found himself on the poor end of difficulties? His life was threatened. His own son rebelled against him. He lost the kingdom for a time. Here was a man who knew well the difficulties associated with life on this earth. And yet even he said, Cast thy burden upon the Lord. He shall sustain thee. He shall never ever suffer the righteous to be moved. If you and I are reckoned amongst the righteous, doesn't that promise then speak volumes? He will not suffer the righteous to undergo that movement. 1 Peter 3.12 reminds us even on that occasion that inasmuch as we ponder and think about the nature of those blessings, we're admonished to pursue goodness. Is it not there said that the ears of the Lord are open unto the righteous, open unto our cries? In the New Testament, there is in many ways a similar statement to that Psalm 55, 22. It's found in the writings of Peter, isn't it, in 1 Peter 5, 7. Casting all thy burden upon the Lord for He careth for you. God does care for us, doesn't He? It's not as if He has left us out to dry on our own, but rather He wishes to, for us to appreciate His provision, just as He did for those children of Israel. As you think about that matter of provision with me, doesn't that lead us to that signal statement that closes James chapter 4? You remember the scene well in which we're there taught that our life is but a vapor that appears for a little time and vanishes away. 
But then, in the verses following, he said, rather than going into a city and buying and selling and get gain, our first thought ought to be, if the Lord will. He didn't say it's wrong to go and buy and sell and get gain, but what is the motivation? Do you and I desire to live in harmony with His will so that that which is done is in accordance to the way it ought to be? Oh, how we need to then live in accordance to His will and strive that every day our life might be according to that will. I would submit to you, perhaps finally, these promises. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Romans 8.28 Isn't it interesting that that 18th verse, as you and I give thought to again the glory that shall be revealed in us, that glory you and I await, of course, is that great glory of the life beyond this one. And we appreciate that no matter the problems or difficulties that we faced here, they all will have been worth it when we appreciate the grandeur there. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. 2 Corinthians 4.17 I would hope that each of us then in the midst of what could be problems, maybe health problems, many of us have had our share, but may we never forget our God is able to deliver. Maybe there are problems physical, some of the necessities maybe in my life for years have at times not been met. Our God is able to deliver. But isn't it still true that by far the greatest deliverance comes from sin? Each and every one of us at times were engulfed by it, overwhelmed in it. Thanks be unto God that He sent His Son, and we could, by obedience to His will, be delivered from the throes of sin, delivered from the overwhelming evilness of it. We lie down in our shame, and our confusion covereth us, for we've sinned against the Lord our God. We and our fathers from our youth even unto this day, and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. Jeremiah 3.25 that attitude of sin brings us to the overwhelming, buoyant passage in Romans chapter 6. We find on that occasion, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you, and being made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness." I realize I stand before an audience, many of whom have enjoyed that transition. Though once a servant of sin, you no longer are. You've been washed in the blood of the Lamb, and you now are a servant of righteousness. God delivered you from sin. It's not to say that you will never commit a sin again, but you've been delivered from the guilt of it. You've been washed in the blood of the Lamb, and as such, your name has been written in the book of life, and hopefully there it shall remain. Many of us, as we think about the blessed joy of that transition, doesn't it bring us back to our God is able to deliver? Mankind couldn't deliver himself from sin. Animals couldn't deliver us either. But God could and He did. There was a time roughly 20 centuries ago when a perfect man hanged on a cross for my sins and yours. He didn't go to that cross because of his sins. He didn't have any. He didn't go to that cross because of crimes he had committed. He'd never committed any. 
He went to that cross to hang there for Randy Bybee. God knew I was going to be born some 20 centuries later and that as a sinner I was doomed for hell if He didn't intervene on my behalf. I was doomed to be lost and undone if He didn't intervene for me. And thanks be unto God, He did. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Verse 16 of John chapter 3. For when in due time Christ died for the ungodly, Romans chapter 5, verse 6. As we close this lesson, isn't it still a fantastic truth to put together these two verses? O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I am a lost and undone sinner. Two verses later, there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Have you been released from that condemnation? Have you been delivered? If today you haven't, why do you delay? There will never be a better day than this one, this 15th day of September, 2013. If you to this point have spurned the Lord's invitation, you have heard it offered, you've even thought more than once about obeying the gospel, let me implore you, just as the Lord does, please think urgently and seriously about the decision you currently are making. You may not be given another opportunity. This may be it. We're going to stand in just a moment as Jeff leads us in a song of encouragement. But please, may we each remember, God is able to deliver. Will you let Him deliver you? Will you, in fact, rush to His blessed side and invite Him to wash your sins away? If you, again, need that to happen today, please, please think urgently of it. It may well be, though, that you have become a member of the blessed body of Christ, but your faithfulness is now something that's no longer obvious. In fact, you know in your own heart that faithfulness is a distant memory. Why not come back to your first love today? A bright new beginning, a blessed new day for you. If we could be of help in that regard, all our desire is, is to do what the Lord commanded. We'll pray for you upon your repentance and your confession of those things. We'll pray to God that He'll forgive them. And He's promised that He will. This very day, then, the Lord's invitation is extended to each and every one of us. Our God is able to deliver. As you and I live our life in the confidence of that statement, may we never forget that statement of Daniel 3.17, our God is able to deliver us. If you need to be delivered today spiritually, won't you come while together we stand and sing?